And we're off. Welcome to No More Normal, a new show brought to you by the same crew behind URNM government. I'm still your host, Khalil Ekelona. Today, we're talking endurance. Think about it. In the last few months, how many times have you heard someone say, we're in this for the long haul? Or maybe you've even said it yourself a few times. It's going to take all kinds of gritty willpower to keep each other alive and to make it through the changes in our world. This week, we learn from younger folks. We get lessons, advice, and stories from civil rights activists. We talk about the endurance of people who've been fighting racist mascots and imagery for decades. Also, the governor talks about collective resilience. And oh, we tag along for a run in this brutal heat. The conversation I get snippets of has to do with masks. Masks pertain to exercise. Seems to be the thing. I mean, mile 17 and still wearing mine. Mile 17, we can do this. Get ready for No More Normal as it starts now. Okay, let's rewind our long distance runner to the first couple miles of her run. This is Liz McKenzie starting a run. I like to start out walking and then just increase my speed. It's a pretty hot day. <laughs> I'm bundled up. I have a loose bandana over my face when I normally wear when I run because of COVID. You know, hat, sunglasses, tons of sunblock, a water backpack. I keep salt packets in my backpack to keep my water intake in. I do have a couple snacks because <laughs> I'll probably be out here for a while. So yeah, it's really nice out. Well, I mean, nice isn't pretty. All right, so I'm out too. Just kind of settling into what pace I might want to set for myself. I've gotten really used to uh, running with a face covering on, even through the heat. And in my head, in my head, it's making me stronger for when things lighten up and they can race again. Here's to hoping. Here's to hoping, Liz. We'll be checking back in with her on a long run in Albuquerque throughout the hour. All right, my next guest is a guest we've been hoping to have for a while. I am on the line with the governor of New Mexico, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. Governor Lujan Grisham, thanks for being with me today. You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I'm delighted. And thank you for all of the incredible information you provide your listeners about any number of critical topics, including the pandemic. So, Khalil, I'm honored to be with you today. Oh. Well, thank you very much. The honor is all mine. Now, talking about the pandemic, people may have hoped early on in the pandemic, which is a few months ago, which feels like a year, that they feel like we were looking at only a couple of months of this and we would be better by summer. So how long are your experts telling you that this may be going on? That's an open-ended question, and I hope it doesn't sound like I'm trying not to answer it, because we're going to answer it to the best of our ability, based on the medical expertise and public health scientific data that we receive. There's different stages of the pandemic, and the problem I think we're all having is in those early sort of formative months, it's a global pandemic, it's March, we're beginning to see uh, cases introduced by travel, New Mexico had that occur on March 11th, mm -hmm. then you know, and a few weeks later, we can see the initial signs of community spread. You're in what we're all referring to as that early acute phase. Bend the curve. Everyone do their part. Stay home. And largely in states, including this one, where governors embrace public health data, mm -hmm. most of our constituents and residents did exactly that, right? They followed suit and they hunkered down. And it made a big difference. Yeah. And then as other states 
didn't embrace public health data, never really went to a stay-at-home order or really minimized. You know, they created then what folks are talking about, the second wave, but really CDC, it's part of the first effort. Once there's community spread, the virus doesn't go away. Hmm. The only thing we can do is limit its spreadability. So here's where we are. New Mexicans should expect that we'll see cases rise for another 7, 14 days. We believe if public health practices, if people will wear their masks, socially distance, stay home to the greatest degree possible, wash their hands, we're going to flatten that curve again. Mm -hmm. We won't see a case reduction. It's just now too prevalent, not like our neighboring states. Then we should expect to, um, again, none of the public health practices go away. But people could introduce a little more normalcy back into their lives. And then I think we're all going to have to brace for flu season. Mm. And we don't know what that's going to mean. So that's what I'm going to call the second acute phase of combating COVID. You're going to get flu, colds. We're not going to know, is it COVID? Is it a combination? I hope we're not going to find this out, that folks who have had COVID and recovered, that their antibodies last longer than flu season, right? It's data we don't yet have Mm -hmm. because it's too early in this infection uh, set of circumstances in the pandemic. So that's the next acute phase. Then flu season will wane Mm -hmm. um, and we should be getting into a vaccine. We're all praying for that. Let's say a vaccine is available late winter, February. Yeah. It'll take 90 days plus after that to get it widely available. Mm. So I believe New Mexicans should be prepared for a little bit of more stability between now and fall, another acute phase in the fall, mm-hmm. and then a leveling out again, a little more risk introduced, still have to do good public health practices, and then a vaccine. And then this is the last hard thing to hear. Life won't go exactly back the way that it was. We'll be having economic recovery strategies. We're going to be worried about any number of other public health issues. And I think it's going to be a message that we have to learn to do things a little differently. But this sort of fatigue about having to learn all new things and be locked in our houses, and even for state government workers who are now exhausted and first responders and hospital workers, I do think there's light at the end of the tunnel. We're at the very first part of a marathon. Gotcha. Do you think that we would already be reopened and in a different phase if the country as a whole pulled in the same direction? There is no question. Look, we are seeing evidence from any number of countries, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, who locked down tight, Mm -hmm. who had very homogenous, universal, positive public health behaviors. I can't say that I can endorse, they worked, but endorse where people with COVID in some of our, you know, Asian countries that we were watching, Japan, Mm -hmm. uh, South Korea, China, where you're wearing a bracelet, they could track your movements, you're quarantined in your apartment, you're not leaving, we know where you are. I think that our privacy and independence issues warrant paying very close attention to finding other strategies than that. Mm -hmm. But the countries that said, you're staying home, you aren't leaving, you aren't going to a beach, nothing's open for 60 days plus, and had contact tracing, and they wore masks, and they did nearly universal testing, they have 
eliminated high risk issues related to COVID. Yeah. All of them. Yeah. And we did not. We were not homogenous. We did not have a national strategy. We were not all on the same page. And now we're debating public health evidence. Yeah. It's not political, it's science. That was a big mistake for this country, and we are definitely paying. And states like ours are on a bit of a roller coaster because we're impacted by the failures of not having an effective national strategy and what's occurring in surrounding states. So it means that we're in a marathon, and now we're uphill. It's still a marathon. We're not on the flat part or the downhill part of the race. We're clearly on the wall-loose part of it, where we have to go straight up. We're going to have to you know, add a little bit of extra effort in what we're doing. And as you stated, you know, the science has been politicized with this pandemic and we're seeing protests about people not wearing masks. How are you all strategizing about how to reach people and to convince them that while the government isn't going to impose draconian laws to track people, i.e. the bracelets you just mentioned, it's important and incumbent upon every citizen to take this seriously as a deadly problem. How are you all going to continue to try to convince people of that? Well, I'm doing it right now. People should expect to see more PSAs by businesses and not just healthcare providers and educators and any number of our community members and leaders who say, you gotta wear a mask. If we get to 80% mask wearing, then I know that we'll be able to sustain safe schools, making sure that whatever decisions we need to make, both in person and online, minimizing class size, that it's sustainable during our marathon. Mm -hmm. It all depends on mask wearing and really being clear about social distancing and safe practices. We are going to enforce, we have provided citations, we have most police jurisdictions locally at least working on continued education. They'll hand out masks that remind folks. I think they're going to lean on the state police by and large, but not every jurisdiction, Mm -hmm. to issue citations. And you're seeing states follow our lead saying, look, we have to take this seriously and we have to change those dynamics. So New Mexicans should expect me in every single press conference, you're going to get two next week, to tell them that we're trending in the wrong direction until we get 80% mask wearing compliance, people are going to have to make even more sacrifices. And it's not fair to kids. It's not fair to educators. It's not fair to our healthcare workers. And it's certainly not good for our economy because it delays being able to do safe, smart reopens. And we can do better than that. It's been proven in many other countries and the countries that have opened schools successfully lowered their rate of infection to lower than one so that you know one person infects less than one other person and that you follow that math we need that and we were going in that direction and now we're not we're above even our rate of infection gating criteria so i hope people will really take heed it is a sacrifice nobody likes wearing masks I think nobody likes wearing seatbelts initially. Now you don't give it a second thought. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, people, they may not like wearing masks at the moment, but most people I know like money. The extra unemployment benefits are about to disappear. It's looking pretty grim for people money-wise. How are you all planning to balance that against these shutdown orders as we're trying to lessen our rates so we can reopen? The $600 funds that are coming to a lot of people on unemployment are, are about to dry up. And it's not enough, off. and yet it's making the difference between being homeless or hungry. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be clear about how significant the lack of economic 
economic security is. I have to hope that the federal government is going to get this right and that they are going to extend and continue to provide some relief or support. But we can't rely on that all by itself, which means I need New Mexicans to get the mask wearing and all of the other public health practices right. The sooner we do that, then the better able we're gonna be or the opportunities to reopen safely. Folks sort of want it to be one or the other. Right. We have some economic efforts and businesses who are saying we're going to go under. It's not that's not an unfair description if you don't let us be open. But we're going to be open no matter what the infection issues are and no matter how many cases we're getting each day, which means they've basically said we're going to choose our economic security, that reality over people's public health and safety Mm -hmm. and more people will die. Or they're asking us to choose public health and safety, and then we won't be able to economically recover. And we're basically telling people they will lose their homes and their families. We have to do both. There's no balance. I have to have both. You deserve both. Every leader wants to succeed in this really tragic environment. If we embrace as a state, like those other countries have, those personal public health responsibilities. Here's what your state has said. We will do better at contact tracing because the more cases you have, the harder that is to meet Mm -hmm. to get everybody contacted in a day. Look, California, they can't do it. Neither can they do it in Texas and Florida. And I'm beginning to think Arizona's not going to be able to. When you have thousands of cases a day and the average contact tracer has to get to 30 additional people, and depending upon where you work and where you've been, you could double that to 60. Mm -hmm. That exponential rate of increase, you can't call all those people. You can't find all those people. You can't hire enough individuals fast enough to keep up. So Mm -hmm. then... People have no idea they have COVID or have been exposed, and you just keep this sort of continuation. So you do good public health. You wear your mask. You stay home as much as you can. You limit where you're going. You box this virus in. We'll do better at contact tracing. We'll be faster. We'll do more testing. We'll do more rapid responding. And together, we can do both. Protect each other and rebuild our economy. Have you reached out to any of your former colleagues in Washington, D.C. about the extra $600 and the importance of Oh, you bet. The entire delegation, you bet. The delegation is clear. The White House is clear. The National Governors Association, where I'm on the executive committee, is clear. The political arm of governors, the Democratic Governors Association cares about this. And while some Republican governors, and I want to be cautious that I haven't surveyed every Democratic governor, so there's a group of governors that worry that the $600 is a disincentive to go to work Hmm. but as i think now states are seeing that the united states has become an epicenter again yeah our infection rates are worse than anywhere else our hospitalization rates are worse than anywhere else certainly any country with the resources and the riches that this country has this is embarrassing at best and horrific that people have lost their lives unnecessarily or have chronic care issues and significant health care damages as a result. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's horrific. 
they may want the $600 to be removed so they can incentivize work, but you're not going to have workers who are going to be able to come to work if they're all sick. Now, let me ask you about prisons. The virus is spreading through prisons here, and ACLU wants you to expand your release order to include people who are in prison for technical probation and parole violations. Are you considering this measure at all? We are, and we appreciate the advocacy of the ACLU. So a couple of things. A, I agree with the ACLU on the technical violations issue. This is an area we wanted to reform in a probation and parole reform measure Mm -hmm. that we didn't quite get through the legislature this last legislative session, and I intend, by golly, to get it done next legislative session. But we have the power to do better in that regard, particularly during a pandemic. The only real challenge is having safe places for people to go, and I don't want that to sound patronizing, but reintegration and support in a community, that all has to be there. That's slower in a pandemic than you want it to be, but I believe the ACLU is going to feel like we're making great progress right this minute through the end of this month, the beginning of next month, they should see a pretty dramatic probation population that is being supported in their communities and they're far safer than they would be. And it's safer for the other inmates too, because you're limiting the number of people in these confined spaces. Mm -hmm. So in the spirit of that letter, this administration agrees. A pandemic is not something any leader was likely imagining having to deal with when they take office. It's your first term of governor. You're handling this pandemic. We've got the BLM uprising and people looking at police reform. And you're also being vetted to be the vice president of this country. How are you doing? How are you enduring all of this and all of this work that you're going through? That is a very generous question. There is real fatigue in state government, and we actually have strategic sessions trying to figure out how not to have fatigue. Mm. Government is challenging, and I love this job, on its best day. You've got good economic support, people are working and happy, you're meeting your goals, having the Great Depression, frankly, Mm -hmm. and the civil rights movements of the 60s and the Spanish flu pandemic all at once in an environment where we have no federal strategy and certainly no federal empathy about doing this sort of we're all in this together Mm -hmm. approach is a disaster. And that that's exhausting because you just don't have any partners. Here's where I find real solace and real support. One, New Mexicans write letters to me and they don't all agree. Yeah. But by far, they're generous, they're kind, they're empathetic, and many more New Mexicans than not are asking how they can help. Two, I've seen the best of state government where people just keep going and keep fighting. Three, by and large, the private sector, particularly the healthcare sector, came together in New Mexico far before I saw those strategies successfully occurring in other states. And you know, when you have that occurring, and by and large your population, and it's not perfect, otherwise we, our rates of infection would be lower and our number of cases would be lower, just look around us. And we have been identified as a beacon of hope. And I'd love to take total credit. Let's pretend I'm on the campaign trail. You know, it's all me. It's all New Mexico. Everybody's doing their part. We have to do better. And I want to be really clear about that. We have to do better. But we've really worked hard. And I hope after your program that people will just 
really do that. Treat this as a, a marathon. We're going to have water stations along the way. We're going to have energy snacks along the way. We're going to have those folks that cheer you on as you're running, even when you don't think you could take another step. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get to the other side of this because we're going to do it together. All right. I want to thank you very much, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. Thank you so much for being on the show. Promise to come on in the future? I promise. If you uh, promise to keep giving us good advice about how we make sure every community has every opportunity in this state. Consider it a deal. Done. All right. Find the longer version of this conversation online at KUNM.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. No summer this year for young adults. Gone are the days of hanging out with friends and partying. You remember, staying out all night, showing up to work or school the next day in pretty bad shape, but ready to do it all over again. In 2020, young adults are encouraged to stay at home and to stay away from social gatherings, friends, and family. To get an idea of how they're enduring the current times, I spoke with four people under the age of 30. My name is Jeremy Jasper. My profession, uh, professional songwriter and producer. My age is 30. I'm Taylor Velasquez. I'm 22. I'm going to be a senior at UNM this fall, and I'm a student intern at KUNM. My full name is Ronald Kyrie Posey. I go by Kyrie. I'm not in school. I actually dropped out of school, but what I'm doing right now is making money off my music, selling people beats. My name is Lexi Sanchez. I'm 24. I currently work as a server at technically a couple different restaurants. I'm still laid off of a handful, so I just recently got a new serving job. I bartend as well, and then I also am going to school for physical therapy. It's crazy. When we first went into quarantine, I didn't think it was going to last this long. So just like staying busy with school has been a real blessing. It's been hard. I feel like especially for young people growing up, it's hard to be content and just sit down and be with yourself. You know, I feel like we're always trying to do something, even if we have nothing to do. But I've really been trying to just enjoy and appreciate the things that are in front of me instead of running to something that slips from my grasp. The pandemic, although it has a lot of bad context around it, I'm actually doing, you know, very well. I've had time to spend to myself, slow down a bit, get business things handled that I have needed to do for a while now. Yeah, so for the most part, the pandemic for my personal health has been very well. I think the biggest impact for me specifically that all of the social distancing has had is just that, I don't know, I'm just a socially driven person for sure, so to not be able to do that has been really hard on me. On top of that, I think that I put a lot of like my self-worth on my ability to succeed and get things completed. And right now, like because everything is on hold, my school isn't even taking in a cohort for this year, so I have to wait a whole other year to apply to my program. Program. I haven't gotten called back from my previous jobs at all yet. I had to find a new job. And it's just been having to be okay with being on hold, which is really difficult. There's definitely a reason I signed up for therapy during quarantine. It was definitely uh, well needed. So are you out there partying or have you listened to the guidelines and decided to rein that in a little bit? It has. It has stopped me from uh, going out with friends and partying or any kind of social gatherings. And it just made me think about how often we do need to go out and those type of things. Normally on a normal day or week, we go out a couple times a week and we party and we go to the bar. But during the pandemic, we've learned that maybe it's something you don't have to do every week. So yeah, it has slowed down quite a bit in that aspect. I haven't, no. I'm very nervous about gathering in large groups or even a couple people because you just never know where other people have been. And I'm like a high risk. I have a lot of autoimmune disorders. So just trying to keep isolated and by myself. 
FaceTime has been a real blessing for sure. Most of my friends, they're all from like the restaurant industry. So we're all used to having to work. Weekends are the busiest time. Holidays are the busiest time. So now that we actually have this free time on weekends and we have this free time, like they really are trying to utilize that. And I'm really trying not to, you know, crucify them for coping with this however they are. But I think some people do have to realize that it's bigger than us and it's bigger than a weekend off, you know? I think that a lot of times, especially with younger adults, we tend to feel very invincible and we tend to feel like, well, as long as something's not affecting me personally, then I'm not, I don't really care about it too much. Yeah, that complex is crazy. I mean... It's like you're going to get sick and you have your whole life ahead of you. Just stay in quarantine, do what you can do now and just hope for the best. I don't know. I feel like we're all looking for answers. But yeah, I guess I've definitely talked to my friends about this for sure. And letting them know that like this is the time to sit down, look at yourself and be present. You know, realize that you're everything you really need. Appreciate what you have. The younger you get, I feel like the less likely death seems to be like a possibility. I feel like I'm getting to a point now where like, I mean, I'm 24, but I mean, it still seems like very like real to me. And I'm starting to realize, you know, my actions do have consequences. We could be sitting down, focusing on something that's gonna better our lives, but instead we'd rather drive around endlessly looking for like, a certain feeling of content. You know, which I feel like is a big thing when it comes to my generation. It's like always looking for something to fill in the spaces. You have something to complain about anyway, you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's a blessing in itself. Like, we didn't ask for any of this. It's been really nerve-wracking lately. They say that COVID could get worse during the winter months, and that's basically the whole school year almost. So now I'm starting to think, oh, well, maybe I can't get the jobs I may have applied for if COVID wasn't happening. So is graduate school a good option for me? And I know they're doing the LSAT online and proctoring it that way. So it's going to be really different. And I have to weigh my options now because they're not what they were going to be like a year ago. We've been enduring things for a long time, but I think right at this moment now, with the pandemic happening and the, you know, George Floyd situation happening, I think that people finally had a second to really assess what was happening. It made people just really look within and look at themselves and be like, what am I doing that I could change? And that's how I felt in the situation. It was just like, what, what am I doing to make this world a better place? The people in my same age group, like we care, we care a lot, you know? So when it comes to like having like significant amount of empathy, I think that that means that we have to endure a lot more, which is really difficult emotionally. Um, it's really difficult mentally it's a lot easier to not endure anything and you know not care but I think that that puts us at a standstill as a as a society I'm a black man and I feel like what I do with my time is what's really going to help the world because like I'm trying to build a foundation and trying to make money so I could actually put funds into these things that are actually going to help it's always going to be my duty to talk about our people's struggle it's not just this one time I don't want to live in a world where there's inequalities and people don't feel safe going out or have to not live their authentic lives because of who they are, who they love, or what they look like. So in the future, I would really like to see people just living authentically and not having to dim their light. We've been thrown every curveball that we can be possibly thrown, you know, like even trying to protest during a pandemic is an obstacle within its own right, you know what I mean? Like trying to get thousands of people on one accord, but also keep people safe. Man, it's been it's been a journey. Many thanks to Jeremy Jasper, Taylor Velasquez, Kyrie Posey, and Lexi Sanchez. 
Ebony Isis Booth is a poet in New Mexico, a cultural strategist, and a KUNM DJ. She selected a poem to ground us this week and to help us build a bridge to recent history. That's where we're going these next 20 minutes or so. Here's Ebony talking about the moment we're in. I've been thinking a lot lately about the concept of time, how much time has passed, how much more time will come and go or lapse before we get to an understanding of our new normal. And there's some endurance that is tied to that, the not knowing, expecting the unexpected, expecting miracles, expecting pain, expecting to survive, having the curiosity, compassion, and grace for yourself and your fellow humankind to endure. Really, that's what it comes back to, the human spirit and our will to survive. We go forward with a spirit of Sankofa, which means go back and get it, to know your past in order to inform and provide a clear path in your decision-making processes about how you get to the future. So yeah, endurance is hard for those who have heavy loads to carry. But everybody, everybody's got something. Be grateful for the you of now. Trust in who you've become. And go forward with excitement about the you who is becoming. So with that, and thinking of times past, present, and imagining a new future, I'll share a poem by Lucille Clifton with you today. Take care of yourselves. Mind your breath. Listen to your heart. Be light, shine. I am accused of tending to the past by Lucille Clifton. I am accused of tending to the past as if I made it, as if I sculpted it with my own hands. I did not. This past was waiting for me when I came, a monstrous unnamed baby and I, with my mother's itch, took it to breast and named it history. She is more human now, learning languages every day, remembering faces, names, and dates. When she is strong enough to travel on her own, beware, she will. Up next, executive producer Marisa DeMarco talks about what it takes to keep a movement going with the founder of the Black Berets, a Chicano civil rights group that got started in Albuquerque in the late 60s. 
More than 50 years ago, a small group of people started an organization that meant to be of service to its community. They called themselves the Black Berets. They worked a long time and gathered members. They built a breakfast program for kids that served hundreds, established healthcare and dental clinics with volunteer medical staffs, and set up educational programs for kids to teach community history and knowledge. Their work through the years included civil rights demonstrations and speaking out against police violence. Richard Moore is one of the founders in its early days, the Black Berets took on a business he says was set up in Old Town with a peephole so tourists could watch Native American workers make jewelry. Moore and I spoke on his farm in the South Valley where he was working to care for plants and bring in crops. We talked for hours, but we only have a couple of minutes here in the show, so I'll drop you all in toward the end when the conversation became about what worked and what didn't and what people doing similar work face today. Initially, it sounds like among the first things you did was kind of tackling racist or exploitive symbols or situations in town, right? Like these little statues and these neon signs and this weird window in Old Town where you could watch people work. Did you have success with that? Well, it worked. We closed every neon light or neon sign throughout the city that had racist uh, tendencies. We would visit the restaurant owner in that case and we would ask him, we'd explain to him what the problem with the situation is here with the, your sign or your neon lights or whatever and we're asking you to take it down. And as we begin to gain momentum, for us, we've always said, let's take the big one on first because if we take the big one and we win the big one, the other ones are just going to start saying, we, these folk are serious about this stuff. They're coming after us next. So we might as well just take the damn thing down before they come up here and start having demonstrations and stuff. No? We were able to do that with consistent support if needed to be by calling for an economic boycott on that restaurant or whatever it may be. We would first go in, have a casual discussion, explain who we are, what we're all about, our programs and our organization, and why we have problems with this particular piece and how it impacts on our people. If we take on American Furniture, which was one of the big ones in those days, and even the shop in Old Town, then the rest of them uh, would do that as we continue to build momentum. It sounds like you guys talk to the community about what it needs, right? We're seeing this this rush of momentum, and it's like everybody can get together on the same page. Like, we don't want to see this happening Anymore. But because of the pandemic, you know, it's hard to go door to door. It's hard to have meetings face to face. It's hard to get everybody together in a room when it comes to trying to figure out what does that actually look like? Who do you ask? How do you demand it beyond protests? What do you really want to see different? You start to see these kind of divisions emerging, right? You know, do you have thoughts about how can people sustain or work together, start to find that we? Yeah, but I think that we need to keep in mind that this was happening before the virus. What we've always said is use technology to its utmost, but do not make technology our primary form of communications. Uh, the primary of communications should be talking to our neighbors, going door to door, doing some surveys at times, engaging in discussions with people, having a willingness to listen, because folks in all of these neighborhoods that we're talking about have some incredible knowledge about very, very many things so we can learn from each other, you know what I'm saying? Always be cautious, we need to be cautious about how in some cases we are allowing ourselves to be intentionally divided amongst each other. And so we need to watch that because that's got a history. Whether it's the church, I mean, whether it's a government institution, whatever it may be, we have to be constantly cautious about not allowing. And then there's the intentional and the unintentional. 
So whether we sit behind trees six feet away with mask on and this kind of thing, people are being creative about what they're doing. If we can't get out in the street and they're standing next to each other in some cases, well then do a demonstration in a car. So maybe it's using some of that same creativity on conversation having. You said the Black Berets had begun working with neighborhoods who were rejecting the police department and who wanted instead the Berets to be the safety force, which is an interesting consideration, right, like as we're in this moment. Was that a functional model? Like, did that work out okay when you guys were doing that? Because a lot of people are saying like, okay, I agree, I don't want the police department anymore, but I'm still worried about violence in my own community and, and trying to sort things out. When you guys were doing that work, did it work? I mean, it worked to the extent that it worked. I just will say it that way because for us, we were monitoring. We couldn't take on every community. I mean, you know, we just, we just couldn't do it. I mean, if we, we would take private vehicles like any of these vehicles, slap on the side of the door in consultation and invitation by that community, Black Berets Community Patrol, and then we would do legal first aid training classes with lawyers, you know, so us understanding our legal pieces. So how do we engage the community talking about how they think that the restructuring of the Albuquerque Police Department or Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department, how does what you come out with from a people's point of view belong to the people? So the people will support what belongs to them if they're a part of creating what belongs to them. Mm -hmm. How do we do that? That's a deep challenge. If we don't do that, if we're advocating in behalf of someone else, without their input into it, then we have no ownership over the decisions that are being made. So how do you, how do you actually do that? I, and that's not easy work to be done. And some of it's fundable and some of it's not fundable. And that's what real yeah. deep down community organizing is. A stronger, slower, whatever, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That's what it's really all about. Coming up, we hear from a former Black Panther in New Mexico and we dive headlong into the news from last week that as people are taking swings at genocidal and Confederate statues around the country, corporations pressured that professional football team in Washington, D.C. to finally change its name after decades of work from activists. No More Normal is brought to you by your New Mexico government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the New Mexico Local News Fund, the Kellogg Foundation, and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Let's check back in with runner Liz McKenzie, who's going the distance in the heat in a mask. Wow. Hey, yo, where you at, Liz? Mile 14, back in my car just to rehydrate, take a quick break. I packed a jar of pickles in a cooler because pickle juice is full of sodium and has like magnesium and some other good things. It um, prevents dehydration and kind of replaces the sodium that I sweat out. So, and I'm someone who's like really prone to uh, heat sensitivity and heat sickness. So I always have to, uh, you know, have either a salt packet or, you know, like now is the first time I brought pickles. <laughs> but just having a quick, quick break. But I keep going. All right, I'll check back in a bit. Aaron Dixon was a Black Panther in Seattle in the 60s and 70s. He lives here in New Mexico now. Here's some of our conversation about the long fight for justice. 
What spurred you to become a part of the Black Panthers when you were in Seattle? I marched with Martin Luther King when I was, you know, about 12 or 13 years old, which got me involved in the uh, civil rights movement. And so also my parents were very politically aware. And after meeting Martin Luther King and then upon his death, that led me to join the Black Panther Party. So you have a lifetime of fighting for social and racial <laughs> justice. You know, this episode we're talking about is what do we have to do as we endure living in the midst of a global pandemic, but also as we endure these oppressive and racist systems of government, corporations and institutions that we're in. What type of lessons of endurance have you learned? A couple of things I've learned is we do have to realize it's a battle of endurance. It's an endless struggle. It's a struggle that will continue on for a very, very long time, and particularly as long as black people live in America, it's a struggle that will take the course of our whole lifetime. Not something that'll last five years or 10 years, and things will get better in 10 years or 20 years. It's a constant struggle. It's a constant fight for respect, a constant fight to you know, make sure that we have the things that our families and our communities need. We have to understand it is an endurance, race of endurance, which means that we have to take care of ourselves mentally and psychologically, and we have to take care of ourselves financially. You know, think about by being in the struggle, but you also have to think about the future of your family and yourself, because hopefully you will grow old. If you live through all the things that are thrown at us, you will grow old. And so, you know, what type of life are you going to be able to have when you do become an older person? So, you know, we have to think about all those things. Looking at the current dynamic of where we're at, we've got Black Lives Matter. And people are looking at that and say that's the fight. But the way I see it is I don't think it's purely about black lives. I think it's about equality for human beings. And talking to friends, I'm like, it's a simple choice. Either you're about equality for all human beings across the board or you are not. This wraps up the Chicano movement. I think this wraps up in the LBGTQ equal rights movement. I think this wraps up in Me Too as well. It's about the survival for everybody because really the number one problem that we are all faced with right now is global warming. Mm -hmm. We're experiencing right now in this very hot weather that we have going across the country and it's only going to get hotter and it's only going to get worse. Mm -hmm. So we have to have a broad perspective and you know the whole Black Lives Matter movement is just one piece of the struggle. You know the one thing about the Black Panther Party is we understood the importance of broad coalition building. Mm. So from the very beginning we had coalitions with whites with brown people. We had international relationships with a lot of different countries around the world. So we understood that the struggle wasn't just about black people, that the struggle was for all oppressed people. And finally, what do you say to that person who's sitting at home right now, really deeply pondering themselves, their actions, and what kind of, not just state or country, but what kind of planet they want to live on for the future and for their kids if they have them or plan to have them. What do you say to that person? I would say that that you have to get off the couch, you have to read, you got to study, and you have to figure out some type of way that you want to participate, some type of way that you want to add your energy 
to working towards to making things better. It's going to take all of us. What are we going to do about global warming? That's the most serious problem that we all are faced with right now. And I ask myself that all the time. What are we going to do? We got to do something. We need to do something and we need to do it fast. You got to do something if we're going to save this planet. Doing nothing is not an option. Well, I want to thank you very much, sir. Thank you for taking time to talk with me. And thank you for your wisdom and everything that you've done. All right. Thank you. Nice talking with you as well. We've requested a song about today's theme from one of our favorite New Mexico-based musicians. From down in Luna County, here's A. Billy Free and Tensei with their track, Against the Wall. Give me strength, some salt, sense of flaxy. Safe part in the center line. Hope that does I know my kind. Creating moments in all the right places. Holding lift steady the pace. If the brick shifts, real tanks, dealing with human beings. Policies, philosophies, and the principalities. Brilliant, resilient, gems by the pound. Like the way to launch above the roar of the hound. When your back is against the wall, the wall, the wall. Beauty talking silence. Can't close me in to throw me off my mission. They just stay free, be the name, just listen. Charging plus and leaking bandwidth. I hike in attacks and they spying on our families. Bust a burner, hot partitions in the way. Don't be the sucker in a lose lose game. Got to make the come up off a of bed, just stop. Keeping it together when the bodies are sprawled. I know you just got here, it's not your fault. Pray tell, what would you do when your back's against the wall? When your back is against the wall, the wall, the wall, the wall, the wall, the wall, pressure get real tall. The wall, the wall, the wall, the wall, answer when it calls. The wall, the wall, the wall, the wall, push it till it falls. The wall, the wall, the wall, the wall, when your back is against the wall. Push it till it falls The wall, the wall When you 
in. Taking a walking break. Down, it's getting really cool. It's technically perfect, but perfect for running. But I mean, I've been out all day, so it's a it's walking time. Oh yeah, I got to a point where I turned off my music, so now I can kind of listen to a the bosque kind of start to shut down for the night. I caught up with Navajo Nation President Nez this week to talk about the end of one racist mascot after decades of work from advocates and what endurance means on the Navajo Nation right now. We'll jump right in. Earlier this week, the Washington football team announced that they were going to change their name. And after reading your statement, I want to talk to you to see how you feel about their decision to change the name. We are happy about the retirement of the name. You and I know that is a disparaging term that has been used on and on again for decades. Now, when I proposed the co-talkers, the co-talkers and the Redskins team have had, or some of our Navajo co-talkers have had a, a good relationship. You know, I saw and I heard some co-talkers say that they didn't think the name Redskins was disparaging. And, you know, the Redskins have recognized and acknowledged the contributions of the Navajo co-talkers. So when I proposed this, I thought it would be fitting, but many citizens, Native American tribal members have said that they don't want anything to do with any type of professional name in the future. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why I said, okay, I will not pursue it. Whatever the name is should be positive and a name that is not putting down an ethnic group. Yeah. Now, you said that there were several co-talkers who said they did not take any offense in that name. And that makes me think about, you know, being an African-American man, people talk about the use of the N-word, particularly now. In 2020 now, I think it's a word that we should no longer use. How did that make you feel when you heard co-talkers say that they had no problem with the name? Well, some of the co-talkers, not all of them, you know, we only have a handful left. Everybody thinks when they hear co-talkers, of course, they know about the contributions of the Navajo co-talkers. But there are other Native American co-talkers who helped in many battles, even in World War I. Native Americans have contributed greatly to the freedoms of this country. But, you know, we won't pursue that. A lot of our people out there, you know, it's divided, as you know. Don't have an issue with it, and some do. Amanda Blackhorse was in the forefront here on Navajo to change the name. And I remember... When I was a lawmaker on the Navajo Nation Council, I helped co-sponsor legislation that said this is a disrespectful name and it shouldn't be used. And the council at the time passed the resolution. And this was over eight years ago. But for others, it doesn't bother them, even our very own tribal members. But if you were to let them know what redskins really mean, 
and they see it from the viewpoint of how tribes have been mistreated since Columbus came across the ocean, then maybe they'll think of it in a different way. It's all about education. Mm-hmm. And I think with what was happening throughout the country in this movement for equality and accountability and how this coronavirus pandemic has hit Native American tribes very hard, it got some attention once again. And to retire the Redskins is an important shift in this country toward respecting Native Americans. You know, with this pandemic, Congress passed billions of dollars to aid states. They promised you money. You've had to endure this incredibly slow response from the federal government in terms of protecting tribal nations. It just shows you the shift that's occurring in the United States. $8 billion was set aside for tribes for relief through this pandemic. And tribes had to take the federal government to court in order to get our share of monies that were intended for all U.S. citizens. But here, the first citizens of this country were, once again, put aside. But the demand from the people out there in holding our congressional leaders accountable has changed. And we're hoping and praying that it will continue to change and have a better relationship with the uh, federal government. You know, this morning I testified before the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Why is it that tribes, U.S. citizens, tribal members in this country have always been ignored and promises broken by the federal government to where 30 to 40 percent of Navajo citizens don't have running water Yet this is happening in the most powerful country in the world. And this is a way of thinking by most of the U.S. citizens that tribal people, in a way, don't matter. It's not in the consciousness. Now that we have some spotlight on tribes, I think U.S. citizens are out there realizing, hey, whoa, wait a minute. We need to treat the first citizens of this country a little better. It's unacceptable that people don't have running water to combat this virus when CDC tells all of us to wash our hands with soap and water, but there is no water infrastructure for some people in tribal communities throughout the country. There are 574 tribes, distinct nations, that have been in this land since time immemorial. So there is a bigger systemic discrimination, and you can call it racism, towards not just people of color, but Native American people throughout this country. But I am confident that we and other U.S. citizens out there will demand change from powers that be. If it's corporations or if it's those lawmakers in Congress or the individual that is in the White House. That's right. President Jonathan Nez of the Navajo Nation, I want to thank you again for talking with my friend. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you for having me on show, Khalil. Yes, sir, always. Antonia Gonzalez corresponded with our partner, New Mexico PBS, reported on how the fight against racist mascots isn't over. Head over to the July 17th episode of New Mexico In Focus at PBS for more on this issue. 
If COVID-19 allows it in September at this exact time, there will be NFL games in action. The action this week was news that the Washington team has agreed to change their racist name and logo. I wanted to get the thoughts of a fan, so I called up Ivan Weiner, executive director of the Albuquerque Film and Music Experience and a Washington fan. I was born in D.C., you know, back in 1970. I know everybody's trying to avoid using the term, but let's not just erase, you know, the history. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, things need to change, and they are going to change. I am 2,000% for that, and always have been, actually. I've been a fan of the team, you know, mainly for the players over the years since the mid-70s. Have you ever had, personally, a difficult time really accepting the team name and logo? Yeah, I have, actually. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a white Jewish guy from the East Coast, you know, from the D.C. area. Growing up, you know, my two best friends were black and Native American. So, you know, I was like the Jewish kid that went to Baptist Church, uh, went to the uh, powwows in North Carolina with my good friend, mm-hmm. and um, really was able to, I'm not going to say ingrain myself, but I was exposed to the cultures because of my best friend. My uh, best friend's grandmother, I'll never forget, uh, she always said, you know, that team needs to change their name. It's such a derogatory thing. And this was back in the early 80s, mm-hmm. you know, when I was like 11, 12 years old. And, you know, that really stuck with me because, you know, you had um, one of the elderly in the Native American community talking about what the name meant to her and how derogatory it was, you know, to the entire Native American culture. And I agreed with that. And so I started doing a lot of research, you know, probably 1990, and found that the original owner of the team, George Preston Marshall, was actually a supporter of segregation. And that was like public, you know. He, I think, started the team in 1932. He he was racist, was a supporter of segregation, wanted to keep people apart. People are praising the team for accepting the name change. But, you know, they're admonishing the team owner, Daniel Snyder, saying that he agreed to change the name only due to intense pressure from sponsors. How do you feel about Snyder's decision and the fact that he made this decision only because of corporate pressure? So, you know, to me, it's really sad that you have somebody like Dan Snyder who doesn't want for anything in the world other than maybe a Super Bowl trophy. You know, the guy has more money than God as an NFL owner and a tech profiteer. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, definitely, you know, he, he has some issues. And, yeah, unfortunately, society, when it comes to sports franchises and other major corporations, money talks. You know, they've been talking about the change of the name for the Washington team for years. He swore to God he was never going to change the name. That was the tradition. You know, it's sad to me that, you know, you have these major companies, you know, come knocking on the door and say, look, either change the name or we're pulling out. And all of a sudden, you know, they're considering the name change. All right. That's one fan's perspective. Now I need to talk to my team. I placed a call to the Prognosticators. A couple of years ago, Three Buddies and I had a sports comedy TV show. You may have seen us. You probably haven't. Here's Benjamin Beniwaska Eaglin, Rod the Mavman Parker, and Jesse Hendricks the Rookie. I'm the captain. Topically speaking, Daniel Snyder does not want a season to start without having a full arsenal of merch. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and and that's, that's all this boils down to, man. It's money. really what it all comes down to. It, it is money. So I want to ask you guys about that. I mean, here it is, the Washington team from Washington. We've talked about it a lot of times, just personally and on our show. So we've got and the with wa- our insider, Benny. And, and the insider, <laughs> Benny. And Benny, you're, you're our a Washington insider. You're a lifelong fan. <laughs> and Our Beltway, man. Here we are. You know, they've agreed to change the name. 
yet it wasn't done out of a sense of justice. It was done out of financial pressure. Just run it by me, guys. How do you feel about that? Well, you know what? In '02, Annenberg polled and found 90% were not offended. 90% of 500 self-identified natives. And now polls are, of course, imperfect. But what it sort of suggests is that a lot of people don't think it's a big deal. However, some people do. And ultimately, the name just can't stand. Would it be the black skins? Would it be the white skins? The yellow skins? None of these are even conceivable. So, yes, of course, it must go. And unfortunately, it's under these kind of cynical circumstances. Benny, our insider man, let's hear it. Oh, you know, you you guys have heard me say it many times. You know, this is the late 80s. I'm still in high school. Something happened in D.C. Everyone had to talk about this thing around the sensitivity. The, The takeaway was that when you refer to somebody by the color of their skin as who they are, you have dehumanized them. And then somewhere down the line, it's, it's saying, hail to them. It's like, hang on. Yeah. And something clicked in me, and I was like, started to have these conversations with folks, and Washington team from Washington team town fans, like, they're not, they don't give a shit. Like, it's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? The bottom line is, are you going to represent white supremacy? Are you going to represent the destruction of an entire culture and call it victory, or are you going to be on the right side of history? Do you guys know the story of the first coach of the Washington team from Washington? No. I've heard the story. Go ahead, rip it down. You're up on your game. Okay. Yeah, this is on the white hot hot take for it. The guy's name is Lone Star Dietz. His name was William Henry Dietz. Like, you couldn't possibly imagine a whiter figure if you were, I don't know, writing a sketch comedy routine. But uh, he was the first coach of the Washington team from Washington. He adopted this persona of a Native American totally falsely. And that was attested by the people who knew him and loved him, including his parents. But the worst of it came when registering for the draft, he marked himself as a non-citizen American Indian. And he had co-opted the identity of this man who disappeared a few years before him, who was 12 years his senior. Bizarre case, he ended up pleading no contest and served 30 days. The whole history of this franchise is just shrouded in white people using Native American identity and imagery for their profit. I I tell you what, the Mavs were drinking some (laughs) Kool-Aid. And, and 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 the Kool-Aid is this, man. When you're looking at a chessboard, you don't want to lose any pieces. You want to change. You want to adapt. You want to adjust fine. But you don't want to lose pieces. So, therefore, in cultural standing of this country, do you want to lose some piece of the chessboard as a Native American cultural representative to, say, the uh, the Beltways, the Washington Oh, Are, I, are you saying Tigers? that some representation is better than just being invisible? Correct. How about the Washington Code Talkers? Okay, yeah. So that was suggested by the president of the Navajo Nation most recently, Jonathan Nez. I think it's a great name. You look at Snyder. Now you have to say, look, we're going to change this name. Finally, that's great. But every time we buy a jersey, every time we buy a ticket, it's for a punk. (laughs) Yeah, he seems to be someone who doesn't warrant a lot of respect. He seems a bit like a punk. Yeah. At the time of my interview with Ivan Weiner and the Prognosticators, other news about a workplace that bred sexual harassment for at least 15 female employees and the Washington football team had not broken yet. If something is rotten on the outside, it's often rotten throughout. Sports work because of the fans. Fans create culture. And football is one of the largest cultural institutions in the United States. 
Aside from the 80-year struggle to change a racist team name and logo, news of this type of treatment shows an abject lack of leadership, and it's not representative of the values that the NFL claims it promotes. Recently in the world of sports, other owners were forced to sell their teams for equally egregious actions. Time will tell whether the NFL can become what it says it is. We're coming to the end of the show, and our runner is coming to the end of her run in Albuquerque heat. Yes, very inspiring. And she did it all with her mask up. This concludes today's 20-mile run with Liz McKenzie. Congratulations, Liz, you are a champion. Next week, we're talking about disappearing acts. What's evaporating good or bad during the pandemic summer? Find us right back here Sunday at 11 a.m. This is No More Normal. I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. Listen live on Sundays at 11 a.m. on KUNM or download the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And on the internet, yep, that internet. Look us up on KUNM.org. All the gratitude in the world to everyone who made this happen today. That's poet Ebony Isis Booth, musicians A. Billy Free and Tensei, producer Cheo Melendez, and finally, Jazz Tone, the producer. Khaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigger Watt composed some of the show's music. We want to give props and thanks to runner Liz McKenzie. Zach Freeman did the original artwork you can find online for this episode. Vanessa Bowen of Bowen Creative made us our logo. Ty Bannerman and Hannah Colton jumped in on the editing, and we wouldn't want to be in it for the long haul with anyone else. What does No More Normal mean to you? Hit us up at nurnmgov at gmail.com. Thank you as always to all of our guests for sharing their stories, lives, and perspectives. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco and produced by yours truly. So happy to be back with you all. I'm Khalil Ekelota. Thanks for listening.